The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're all doomed! It's Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Doom is actually the title of the new book from Neil Ferguson, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. And the opening of his book references a sitcom that I don't know is an American in which one of the characters apparently, no matter what happened, would always say, we're all doomed, which is hilarious. I was laughing quietly, as you alluded to, uh, Dad's Army. We're doomed. It's a very Scottish thing to say, which is part of the reason that I gave the book the title Doom. But but actually, we're doomed is a Star Wars line. I hadn't realized this until I started researching we're doomed in popular culture. And I think it's a common response when anything goes wrong. There, there, there are those people who think when disaster strikes that it's the end of the world. And then there are those people who, when disaster strikes, are like the guy on the jacket of the book who, who's carrying on sinking his putt uh, as the wildfire rages behind him. And I think part, part of our problem with, with disasters is that, that we, we kind of divide into the people who, who freak out and, and the people who go into denial. Well, we're always pleased when people we admire uh, agree with us. It makes us feel better about ourselves. And uh, you seem to share our belief that the fixation on the chief executive president of the United States, for instance, as, as some sort of godhead who can and should fix all problems is, is pretty uh, misplaced. Right. Uh, uh, Tolstoy in War and Peace makes fun of the idea that Napoleon was in command of the destinies of all Europeans. And uh, as an historian, I've tended to to be skeptical of of the idea that it's all about one or two great or wicked men. Uh, That's not because I'm a Marxist historian. On the contrary, I just think that in truth, history is a complex process. And very rarely is the man at the top, and it's usually a man, in sole charge, especially when disaster strikes. So what happened last year was that all those people who had it in for Trump already were given the perfect opportunity to say that it was all his fault. Uh, Jim Fallows wrote a piece in The Atlantic that said 
when I fly my light aircraft, I'm in charge. So if something goes wrong, it's my fault. And the president is in the analogous situation. Now, being the president of the United States is not like flying a light aircraft. It, it really is not because you're in charge of a vast number of different agencies and you can't possibly keep a, an eye on every threat the nation faces. In practice, in every country, when there's a pandemic, uh, there is a bunch of people whose job that is. Uh, in the U.S., there's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. There's the Department of Health and Human Services. They even have a deputy secretary for preparedness. And uh, the idea that the, it's the president's job to sit there and make calls about making tests available for a new coronavirus is, is a cartoon version of how government works. And I think if we draw the conclusion, and I'm afraid of many, many, many people have, if we draw the conclusion that this was all Trump's fault, that we wouldn't have had half a million plus dead if it had been Joe Biden who'd somehow magically got elected a year early, then we are not going to learn anything from this experience, and the next disaster will be just as big a debacle. So I, be- I believe we talked to you right at the beginning of the pandemic and um, and we were talking about how it looks like this is going to shape up to be, you know, the sort of thing that makes history books for centuries to come. Like it's that big of a deal. What do you give the world for a grade on reacting to this 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 horrible thing that, that struck us a year ago? Yeah, I, I have to say that the F comes to mind at this point. And, uh, you know, you don't need to take it from me because there's a, a new report that's just come out, the independent panel, uh, which uh, has, I think, arrived at somewhat similar conclusions to my own, namely that this was an avoidable disaster. If we had acted the way, say, the Taiwanese and the South Koreans did uh, early, quickly ramping up testing and creating contact tracing, isolating people who were infected, we, we did not need to have a global pandemic. And indeed, Taiwan did not have significant excess mortality at all. I think 12 people have died of COVID in Taiwan, and they're right next to China. So we know that this did not have to be this way. We know that we did not have to have more than half a million Americans die prematurely. Uh, the, the problem, I think, is that, that we are seeking simplistic narratives about this story, uh, which are going to lead us to miss what is really amiss, uh, what is really wrong. After all, this is not the only disaster that we have had handled badly in recent times. I, I don't think you could claim that we handled 9-11 brilliantly. Uh, certainly with the benefit of hindsight, invading Iraq doesn't seem like the best possible reaction to that crisis. Financial crisis, well, on paper, we were prepared. We had all kinds of regulations in place, but that was a pretty big debacle. And then on paper, we were prepared for a pandemic. It was just that maybe we got the wrong sort of pandemic. I don't know what the excuse would be. But I think there's a pattern here. Of, of failure. And I don't think it's always been this way uh, because we, we have great scientific knowledge. We, we understand a lot about the disasters that we are likely to encounter, but it feels to me as if our response has become less competent uh, compared, let's say, with the 1950s, when in the face of the so-called Asian flu of 1957, the Eisenhower administration was able to cope with the the challenge and deal with the disruption of of excess mortality without shutting the economy down, without letting the deficit explode, without creating all the kinds of, I think, avoidable uh, and and costly mistakes that, that were made in 2020. 
I know one of the themes of the book is that you you believe we have a what you call a middle management problem, a bloated, complex bureaucracy problem. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, it's as we were saying earlier, very easy just to say this was all down to Trump. And I, I think uh, we've got to avoid uh drawing that conclusion. Not that he didn't make many, many mistakes, but in truth, it wasn't because of Trump that CDC completely failed to make testing available early in the in the pandemic. The CDC folks, first, they stopped anybody else from developing tests, and then they produced a test of their own that didn't work. And I, I'd, I'd love to believe the President of the United States is, uh, is, is busily monitoring the activities of laboratories at CDC, but let's face it, that's not how this job works. I learned a very important lesson from studying another disaster. It was actually a smaller disaster in terms of death, but a pretty spectacular one in terms of its impact on American imagination. So that was the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger shortly after its launch. And a brilliant man, a physicist named Richard Feynman, wrote a a book about that. He was involved in the inquiry. And in the book, he observes that the initial impulse of the media was to try and pin it on Ronald Reagan, to to try to claim that, oh, the the shuttle launch had been rushed because Reagan wanted to reference it in a speech. And this was all completely made up. The reality was that at NASA, the engineers knew that this thing had a 1%, a 1 in 100 chance of blowing up. They, They knew there was a problem, especially at low temperatures. Temperatures. Uh, but the bureaucrats at NASA decided to change that one in a hundred chance to one in a hundred thousand in order not to uh, reveal to the people who were backing the space shuttle program, namely Congress, that there was a significant risk of a disaster. Now, I think throughout history, we find that guy in middle management again and again uh, inserting the point of failure into the chain of command. Uh, But we always want to blame the person at the top. So the Titanic sinks, and it's the owner of the shipping line who gets the, the maximum blame and opprobrium heaped upon him. But that is not really the key to the losses uh, on the Titanic. Uh, and I, I think in the same way, you, you kind of go through the disasters and you start to realize that it's, it's rarely the person who's really at fault who gets the blame in a disaster. We, we tend to want to, to pin the blame on whoever's at the top of the chain of command. But disasters generally don't really unfold because of major errors at the top. I mean, it wasn't, just to give another random example, it wasn't Winston Churchill's fault that the defense of Singapore was completely bungled in World War II. Uh, we can certainly say with Harry Truman, the buck stops here. Responsibility ultimately lies with the president or the prime minister, sure. But let's not tell ourselves a fairy story that if only we'd had a different president last year, it would all have been fine, because that, that seems to me like a complete fairy story. Yeah, the example you gave fits with the story of the day yesterday when the New York Times let us know that the CDC saying less than 10% of transmissions were outdoors when the real number was 0.01% or whatever. Uh, It's the same sort of thing. Crazy, crazy. And, you know, that's a very good example of what was going wrong and is still going wrong. It was obvious a year ago. If you were paying attention to the research that was coming out of China and then North Italy, where the disease first really struck, that it wasn't being transmitted outdoors. I mean, there were literally no cases out of Wuhan of outdoor transmission. And I remember reading this and thinking, oh, that's interesting. And so we ignored that for a year. 
and introduced a whole range of totally stupid restrictions of which my personal bugbear were the closures of parks and Mm. beaches. California shut down its public spaces. So it not only locked people in their homes, but they then prevented them from going outdoors. And then, of course, you have the mask wearing outdoors, which is actually entirely pointless. And this was not, it's not like we just figured this out. This was obvious. It was obvious in March of, of last year because nobody was getting this virus in in outdoor settings. You could see already in the spring the super spreader effect that basically 20% of infected people did 80% of the spreading. You could see already uh, over a year ago that this thing disproportionately killed people over the age of 65. And you could see the places that it spread. They were indoor settings where large numbers of people were fairly close together yelling or singing. And so the places that you should shut down in a situation like that are the restaurants and the bars, and you should certainly not be having people go to church. That, That stuff was, that was not, difficult to see. I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist. I'm a historian. But I was reading the literature as it was coming out because I was pretty fascinated by by the fact that we were in the midst of an obviously historic disaster. And it is mystifying to me that so many public officials whose job this was got things as basic as that wrong and imposed a set of restrictions on the population that were ultimately harmful. It must have been harmful to stop people getting outdoors and to confine them indoors uh, when the virus is something that, that spreads indoors. Well, what makes us insane, and perhaps you can help us tease out what's going on here, is that so many of the the uh, protective methods, the policies that have been disproved months and months ago remain like the masks outdoors. Is that just... Is that a fixation on COVID? Is that uh, bureaucracies not at work? Is that a bias in favor of the status quo? What's going on with that? I think there are two things. One, we have a bureaucratic mentality which regards all risk, no matter what the probability is, as unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And the fun of that, if you're a bureaucrat, is that you can generate endless regulations. And then people get off on that to an extent that I think some of us find hard to comprehend. But I see this not only at the state level, but at the the local level, the county level, and the campus level, just the kind of desire to create regulations for their own sake. I'll give you a great example. The swimming pool where I take my kids has all kinds of precautions in place, and my favorite is the buffer lane. There is a lane that is left empty between where kids can swim and adults can do lap swimming. Because, of course, the SARS-CoV-2 virus loves to swim in chlorinated water, but it really can't swim across. It can only swim it. I mean, you know, <laughs> come on, guys. And I credit to my nine-year-old. He's like, he's nine. He knows this is bullshit. And it's like, so he swims into the buffer lane to provoke what he calls the COVID police. And the COVID police, the poor people who have to enforce these regulations, we really come over and tell him to, to go back into into his lane. And, and they must know it's, it's, it's crap, too. So we have a curious phenomenon, which is that there are some people who just love regulation and they love to control people's lives and it gets them out of bed in the morning and this was their permission to regulate our every activity no matter what the science said i don't think they paid the slightest attention to the science it was just like oh great now we can create a lane where nobody can swim the other thing that's going on which which, i mean this makes me crazy um but the other thing that's going on is that that we've developed a habit which was not always there in the united states of making everything a partisan issue 
And so, it, which wasn't true. Like in the 1950s, vaccines were like, great, we have the vaccine. We, we were very proud of the fact in the 50s that the U.S. was better at developing vaccines and faster at making them than anybody else. And was like, everybody was like into that. And there was no partisan division on this issue. We, we've allowed public health to become a partisan domain. And, and therefore, mask wearing has become a symbol of political affiliation. And the masks here in California are going to be worn long after we have huge percentages of vaccine and we're going to have a huge percentage of people vaccinated around where I live we probably already do I, I was told the other day it's actually over 80% in my neighborhood and, and we're going to carry on wearing masks pointlessly not really because we think we have to stay protected from a virus that is no longer really around, but, but because it's a badge. And I've, somebody said to me the other day, oh, I'm wearing the mask because I don't want people to think I'm a conservative. Oh, oh God. wow. Wow. Right. These are strange I times. Know, I know that when I'm not, when I go out on the campus without the mask, I know that I'm getting the, the dirty looks. It's like I'm wearing a MAGA Right. Hat. Exactly. That, that makes me depressed because it means that we've totally decoupled what we do in public health from science. And often it's the people who say the science, follow the science, who are least interested in actual science. Neil Ferguson, it's always a great pleasure. We appreciate the time very much, and we hope we can talk again soon. I'd love that. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. He reminded me, um, uh, we, we did know going way back that it doesn't, transmit outdoors remember that footage of the beaches around los angeles where the 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 covid cops were waiting on the beach for the kayakers to come in oh that's right people alone out at sea were being arrested yeah waiting on the beach to arrest them when they got there because you couldn't just absolutely ridiculous i like the fact that neil ferguson who's a, a a smart guy gives the world an f in its response to this yeah absolutely and and the fact that he attributes it, I've been reading some of the uh, summaries of the book and the chapter headings and that sort of thing. He attributes it to essentially bureaucraties, the disease of, of bureaucratitis, where there are just too many small people and small minds and egos and protecting the bureaucrat for all policy to pass through. And it just, it can't, it's like a filter that the openings are too small for the particles that need to get through. And you just can't have good, effective, timely policy in the system we have. So the book we were talking about is Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. You can grab any book that Neil Ferguson's ever written and you'll be better for having picked it up and read it. So, Yeah, here, here. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.